0: continuing verse by verse through the book of Matthew, and we are midway through Matthew chapter 24, don't turn there. We're going to uh, become familiar this morning with yet another important eschatological concept. Over the course of the last several weeks, I hope that you have gained a familiarity with some of the terminology now. When someone says, Daniel's 70th week, you know what that means. Or when somebody talks about the time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again, commonly called Philipsis Megas, the great tribulation, that you know what that means. Now, this past Wednesday night, in the midst of our Amos teaching, we spent the whole night talking about the day of the Lord because that is, again, another concept that we have to be familiar with in order to understand Matthew 24 in its completion. For those of you who are listening on the Internet at some time in the future, the message that I just referenced, go to the listen link on the website, go to the Amos teaching, and it is number five in the Amos series. And that's where you'll find the day of the Lord teaching. Today we need to become familiar with yet another of these concepts. And as we become familiar with each of them, we're trying to kind of plug them in so that you understand how they all interact with each other. This morning we're going to talk about a a very controversial matter, especially in Reformed circles. We're going to talk about the rapture of the church. Years ago, I was challenged by a preacher who said to me, "Um, you know, Jim, sometimes I hear you talk about the rapture, and your problem is you can't find a rapture anywhere in the Bible. And I said, Enoch, that does nothing for you? He said, no, the problem is the word rapture is not in the Bible. He's absolutely correct. The word rapture is not in the Bible anywhere. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is sort of the quintessential passage on the concept of the catching away. <laughs> I wrote a couple words on the board. The first is the Greek word harpazo. That is the word that is translated caught away, catching away, any of that terminology that we're about to read. It is this Greek word harpazo. Now, what you need to know about the word harpazo is that it does mean to be snatched away forcefully. It is a word that is used in common Greek parlance. If you were robbed, if somebody fell upon you, a gang of robbers, and they took your stuff the action of forcibly taking from you is Harpazo. In Harpazo, the strength is in the person who is doing the taking. The thing that is taken is passive. For instance, if I ran over there and grabbed Tom's glasses, his glasses would exert absolutely no energy or force at all. All of the activity would be on my part because I'm the one doing the Harpazo action. I'm snatching them away. Got that idea? Well, that's the word that Paul uses. Now, when the Bible was translated into Latin, the Latin word that was used to translate Harpazo was rapturo. It's a version of raptus. And you can see how that moved directly into the English language. Rapturo, change the O to an E, and you've got your rapture. And so when people say there's no rapture in the Bible, they're technically correct. The English word rapture is not in most translations. But the phrase catching away is, the word harpazo is, the rapturo is. Got it? Mm-hmm. So let's start reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. The King James will say, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, The NASB says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that means dead, those that have already passed away, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Jesus, with him, Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he's reassuring the Thessalonians, who of course were concerned about a lot of things. They were concerned that perhaps they were in the day of the Lord, they were undergoing a great deal of persecution. Paul had to correct several of their misunderstandings of eschatological events. So they were concerned because there was this anticipation that Christ would be right back. They were concerned, well, then what about those who have already died? What about our loved ones who have died? Have they missed the opportunity to be there when Jesus comes back? And he is correcting them. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Jesus when he comes back those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So that's actually a great reassurance. They've died. They're with the Lord right now. When the Lord returns, they'll come back with him. They're not at all lost, and they're not going to miss out on the event. And then he says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul is always very clear. When he expresses an opinion of his own, he will tell us that it's his own opinion. Here he says, I got this directly from Jesus. This is Jesus' teaching. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those that are already dead in the Lord and those that are alive when he returns will participate in the same resurrection event. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And there is a great deal of comfort in that. Those that have already passed away, And those that are alive and remain will all participate in the gathering of the church when that happens. When Christ returns to catch away the church, by the way, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That caught up is the word harpazo. There's your rapture, basically. So according to Paul, carrying Jesus' words, there is a time coming, there is an event that's going to occur at some point where Jesus returns and he is going to catch away his church. Those that are already dead are going to rise up out of their graves, that's what he said. He's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. So that's an actual resurrection event. And then we that are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and then we'll always be with the Lord. Keep your finger there. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because you might well ask, okay, those who have already died... They are going to resurrect, so they're going to have resurrected bodies just like Christ. Christ died, resurrected again, has an immortal body, and those who have died in the Lord when he returns are going to come up out of their grave. Well, then they're going to have an immortal body, but what about those of us who are alive and remain Are we changed in any way? We don't go through any kind of resurrection? We just sail off of the planet and go meet the Lord in the air? Is that how it works? Well, Paul filled in those blanks here in 1 Corinthians 15. And actually in 1 Corinthians 15, he has been arguing about the concept of resurrection You may recall that among the Jews, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there was a great deal of controversy about the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe that there was a resurrection, or angels, they argued about the afterlife. The Pharisees embraced all that, and so Paul has been arguing in favor of physical resurrection. And then at chapter 15, verse 50 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Now, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Exactly. There's the problem. I'm a flesh and blood creature, kingdom of God or going to heaven or any of that. I can't inherit that because I am sinful flesh. So something has to happen. Something has to change. The same way that those that are dead in Christ go into the grave and then resurrect again so that they have that resurrection body like Christ's own body. Those of us who remain, who are alive when he returns, notice how often I say those of us because I keep including myself in that because I like that whole I'm going to be alive and remain and never actually die. I like that idea. But what about us? What about those of us who are still in our physical bodies? There's our problem. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable, his perishable dying flesh, inherit the imperishable, the eternal. So something has to change. Then he uses this word mysterion. Behold, I show you a mystery. And what that means basically is... A previously unrevealed truth. I'm going to show you something that you could look all the way through the Old Testament. You could look all the way through the prophets and you're not going to understand this concept. This is something new that I have to show you. I have to teach you. So behold, here's a mystery. We shall not all sleep or we shall not all die. But we shall all be changed. Okay, that's helpful. So those that are dead in the Lord are going to be changed at the resurrection. Those of us who are alive and remain are also going to be changed. Good news. How are we going to be changed? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So just like he wrote to the Thessalonians, Christ was going to return with the voice of an archangel and a trumpet, and the dead in Christ would rise first. Here he says the same thing, that there's going to be the voice of the trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. Because we know that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, cannot inherit any of the heavenly destiny that God has for us. Therefore, we have to be changed. And so some people will be instantaneously changed. As quickly as light glints off an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we will be changed. Verse 54 says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, my brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Back to First Thessalonians. Here's what we know so far. We know that Christ is going to return in the clouds, exactly like we saw at the very beginning of the book of Acts. When he sailed up off into the blue, and the apostles were standing there staring up at the sky, and an angel stood by them and said, ye men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring up into the sky? This same Jesus will return in like manner as you've seen him leave. So he's going to return in the clouds, and that's why that imagery shows up time and time again, the cloud imagery of the return of Christ. And when he returns in this instance, he returns for the purpose of gathering his church. And if they have already died in Christ, they're going to be raised up out of their graves, given immortal bodies, rise up into the air to meet him. Those who are alive and remain that belong to Christ are going to be given immortal bodies, instantaneous change. They're going to have that instantaneous resurrection without having to die first. Anybody confused about any of that? Okay, now I know that that all sounds really incredible and really fantastical, and none of us have experienced such a thing. But this is why Paul would have to say, hold on, I'm going to show you a mystery. I'm going to show you something really incredible here. Now, I believe every single word of the Bible. I believe everything that the Bible has to say, even in places where I have a hard time believing it, I still believe it because I am convinced that it is the word of God. And therefore, I am convinced that a time is coming when Christ is coming back. That is the hope of all Christianity, that Christ is going to return. And one of the reasons that he is returning is to gather his bride. One of the things that he told his apostles when he was getting ready to leave was that he was going to prepare a place. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. It's his intention that his church be with him in eternity so that they can see his glory. And in fact, he followed the model of common Middle Eastern marriage. Common Middle Eastern marriage, the bridegroom, once he was betrothed to a wife, before he married her, he would go to his father's house and he would build an extension onto the house, a place for them to live. And then he would come back and he could come back at any time, day or night. And the father gives permission, go and get your bride, bring her back. And so all of that typology that is built into Middle Eastern marriage, he utilizes that in order to say, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And then he says, in my father's house, there are many dwellings. I think the King James there says many mansions, which gets people all excited. Yay, I'm going to get a mansion. But in fact, what it is, is many dwelling places. In his father's house, there are many dwellings. And by the time you get to Revelation 21, and you read about the new Jerusalem, and you read about how huge it is, he's right. In his father's house, many, many dwellings. So all of that is still forthcoming. That is still in our future somewhere. Whether we pass away and rise up out of our grave, or whether we're alive and remain when he comes back, either way, He's coming back and he's going to get his bride and take her to what Revelation chapter 19 refers to as the marriage supper of the lamb. Mm -hmm. So all of that language is very consistent. I personally am really looking forward to it. Yes, ma'am? The
1: place refers to the New Jerusalem. Is that
0: what you say? I think ultimately, because that is our ultimate destiny. Does that
1: exist? And so when we die, we go there,
0: and then when it comes back down, where is that right now? Here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that Paul said that it was better for him to die and be with the Lord. He also said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so that's where we get the concept of die, go to heaven. And I'm fine with that. But there is a time when Christ returns, remember, he comes back with his saints, so he returns from heaven with the saints who have been with him in heaven because our ultimate place for eternity is here on earth, the new Jerusalem. New heavens, new earth. After the millennium. After yep.
1: the
0: uh, millennium. So where's the new Jerusalem during that time? Still somewhere in another dimension Cleveland, as I understand. it. Yeah, I can only assume. Yes, another dimension. Are we in the New Jerusalem? No, no. There's no indication that we are. But eventually, we will get to. So where will we be in a familiar place? We will be with the Lord wherever He is, and at the moment He's sitting at the right hand of God. Do
1: we have bodies? In heaven?
0: I would argue not until the resurrection, and the joining of body and soul. But this is really important, the salvation that Christ proffers, Paul even talks about it, that it is body, soul, spirit. It is a complete redemption. Christ does not just redeem our souls, which he gave to us to begin with, and then by his spirit is, is retaining the new man, and then give up on the flesh, because the flesh was originally made in God's image. The redemption that Christ accomplished at Calvary is the totality of those that belong to him, body, soul, and spirit. And so when you die, your body goes into the grave. There's no argument about that, but your spirit clearly goes to be with Christ, according to everything Paul has said about absent from the body, being present with the Lord. Currently, the Lord is seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, I assume we join him in heaven. When he returns to establish the kingdom, to gather his bride, marriage supper of the lamb, then all these resurrection events occur. And then there's the establishment of the kingdom. And the kingdom's going to last that thousand years that we see in Revelation 20. And then after that, Revelation 21, you read about new heavens, new earth, the new age is introduced there. And then New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, and that is the final eternal state. And that's the place I believe he is preparing. So yes. if we
1: don't have any sort of physical substance in heaven, or just, you no know,
0: corporal? I'll put it this way. Some theologians call that the intermediate state. You should make it analogous, Jim, to Christ on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yet his body's still laying in the grave for three days, and then he's... No. Glorified body before sure. So in other words, what you're saying, Linda, is that we don't really comprehend it all yet, do we? No. Yeah, there are mysteries out there yet to be revealed. Yeah. Wonderful mysteries, but to give you absolutely rock-solid answers, I can only tell you as much as the Bible has told us. But if you ask, like, what am I going to look like? You know, how tall will I be? I'm hoping I'm resurrected with hair. I'd, I'd like to be 6'2 and hair. And... But people sometimes ask, well, what about children? You know, will they be children in the eternal state? My answer is always, you will be the best version of you there is. But I don't know how to explain things that the Bible doesn't explain. Make sense? Absolutely. All right. Very good. We're back in 1 Thessalonians now, chapter 5. On Wednesday night, as we were talking about the day of the Lord language, we ran into the concept of the thief in the night. And so I want to plug this into what we know so far. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, this is chapter 5, verse 1. You have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The reason this is important is because there are books. There was even a movie once called Thief in the Night. And it was all about the rapture. Notice that Paul never applies the thief in the night language to the rapture. He only applies it to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is going to come suddenly. And Matthew 24 is going to say that. That's why it's important that we read it from Paul so that we get that firmly in our mind so that when Jesus says it, we know how to plug that in. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them like pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. There's that Men walking around, holding their sides like a woman giving birth. That same imagery runs all the way through the trouble, tribulation, day of the Lord language. We looked at several examples of that on Wednesday night. But for the moment, catch what Paul wrote. They're going to be living in peace and safety. They're going to be saying peace and safety. They're going to think everything's fine, everything's good. And then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. In Matthew 24, Jesus is going to compare it to during the time of Noah when everybody was just doing their thing. Buying, selling, trading, getting up every day, doing their stuff. Marrying, giving in marriage, making plans for the future. And he says, and in Noah's case, suddenly the flood came and washes them all away. They didn't see it coming. And then he compares it to Sodom and Gomorrah and says they were doing the same thing. They're doing their trades, they're doing their deals, they're marrying, they're looking forward to the future, they're giving in marriage. These are all forward-thinking things, and then he says sudden destruction fell on them. Fire and brimstone from heaven destroys them all, and they didn't see it coming. That's the the thief-in-the-night concept. If a thief comes in the night, (laughs) you don't see him coming. That's the whole point. So he likens the day of the Lord to a thief in the night and then he says they're going to be saying peace and safety and then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Then look at verse 4. But you, brethren, who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to the Thessalonians. Notice the pronouns that Paul uses. He talks about them and they and they will say and they'll be destroyed. But you, the people who are the direct object of this letter, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. So they will be caught off guard and it's going to overtake them. But again, he reassures the church that you're not going to be overtaken by it as a thief. Verse 5, because you are sons of light, you're sons of day. We're not of the night, nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as the others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those that get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation follow this for God has not destined us for wrath okay this is important we've been looking at the concept of trial trial tribulation such as never was ever would be again on Wednesday night as we started looking at the day of the Lord language we also saw that the day of the Lord is sometimes called the day of God's wrath So there is a time coming when God is going to pour out wrath against his enemies here on the earth. But Paul very clearly says, because we're of the day and not of the night, the day of the Lord and all that judgment is not going to fall on us the way it's going to fall on them. They're not going to see it coming, but we're of the day. It's not going to fall on us. Why? Because we are not destined by God to wrath. Now, that's an important theological concept because the reason that we who are in Christ are not destined to wrath is that Christ has already taken the wrath of God in our place. And so we who are the body of Christ cannot undergo the wrath of God again because the wrath of God is a judgment, vengeance against sin. But if we are, in fact, as the Hebrews writer says, Hebrews 10, 14, I quote it frequently, that by his one sacrifice he perfected forever all those that he sanctified, then we who are in Christ are already perfected forever. How in the world can God pour out his wrath and vengeance for sin against those that are already perfected? So there is a theological basis for the notion that we will not undergo the wrath of God. And we won't undergo the wrath of God because we are of the day. So let us be sober. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. But what has he destined us for? But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we're awake, that means alive and remaining, or whether we're asleep, that means already dead, we may live together with him. So when he comes back. He's going to get those that are dead that belong to him, those that are alive that belong to him. will go through the instantaneous change, and we're all gathered together. Why? Because we're not destined to go through wrath. And because of that, sequentially, people argue that the church has to go through that gathering, that rapture, before the wrath happens. Make sense? And then, of course, Paul says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are now doing. So, now that we've got this idea, this concept of the rapture, there are a couple ways that people approach the prophetic elements of the New Testament. And they really fall into two big camps. There is either the historicist camp or there's the futurist camp. The historicists say that everything that the Bible teaches, and especially that the New Testament teaches about the return of Christ, is in the past somewhere. It's already historically been satisfied. This is what's known as preterism. And then there are those who say that at least some of what is predicted remains to be accomplished. That's called futurism. I am a futurist. I think most of the people in this room are futurists. The breakdown among futurists then turns into discussions and arguments and vehement debates about exactly when the rapture takes place in reference to the time of tribulation. So you've got Daniel's 70th week. For the moment, assume that Daniel's 70th week is the time of tribulation that Jesus spoke of. That'll help you with the language I'm about to put on the board. So you've got Daniel's 70th week. Where in Daniel's 70th week does this event take place? Where the church is gathered to meet the Lord in the air, so will we ever be with the Lord. Where does that take place? If you believe that it takes place before before Daniel's 70th week, and if you believe that the tribulation encompasses Daniel's 70th week, then you believe in pre-tribulation rapture. See how that works? Now, because both Daniel and the book of Revelation use the three and a half math very frequently, sometimes called a time, times and half a time, sometimes called 42 months, sometimes called 1,260 days, they all add up to the same thing, three and a half or half of seven. And since we read that there's going to be a point at which the little horn, the antichrist, the beast, pick a word, there's going to be a point at which he's going to break the covenant that he makes with Israel. And that is most often assumed to be the midpoint, the three-and-a-half-year midpoint. He's going to set up the abomination of desolation. Paul talks about it, that he's going to stand in the temple showing himself that he is God. Oftentimes people assume that that happens at the midpoint so that the three-and-a-halves work. If you believe that at that midpoint, Christ comes to get the church, that is called mid-tribulation. If you believe that the church is going to go through the entirety of the tribulation, and that Christ is going to gather his church after the seven years have run, just prior to the inception of the kingdom, that is called post-tribulation. Tribulation. Since the 1980s, there has been another entry into this race, pre-wrath. Now, pre-tribulation would also be pre-wrath because we believe we're not destined to wrath. Mid-tribulation would also be pre-wrath because the wrath of God would fall after the midpoint. And so we would agree with the pre-wrath folk that, correct, the church can't be here when the wrath of God falls. Uh, I won't go into all the details of each of these positions. I'll only let you know that the controversy exists. And there are people out there adamantly defending each of these positions. Personally, I'm convinced that the pre-tribulational view is the most Biblically consistent view. And most of the reason that I'm convinced of that is because of Paul's writing, but also because of Daniel's writing. So I am premillennial, I am pre-tribulational, I am pre-everythingist. <laughs> I'm just pre, pre, pre. I have so many David Morris jokes running through my head right now. He once said, I'm so pre, I won't go to the post office. And so <laughs> I am... So anyway, I'm priest. This is still all introduction, so just hang on. The reason I bring all this up is because in Matthew 24, turn there now. We're finally going to get to the text we're working out of. Turn to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, there are two passages that people who adhere to the pre-wrath and the post-trib, and even some mid-trib folk, they claim that there are two verses in Matthew 24 that are about the rapture of the church. And they use that as their evidence to say that the church will still be here during at least some portion of this tribulation, this time of trouble, all these problems. The church will still be here and have some interaction with the antichrist, the beast, the little horn. Of course, if you're post-trib, you believe that the church is going to be here through all of it and have to deal with the question of taking the mark and all of that, or losing your head or standing for Christ, the pre-wrath position also believes that. And so they're basing it on the belief that Matthew 24 includes a direct reference to the rapture of the church. I don't think it does. Mm -hmm. The evidence we have seen so far is that all of Daniel's writing that parallels Matthew 24, Jeremiah's writing that parallels Matthew 24, all has to do very exclusively and very specifically with Israel. And the time of trouble, such as never was, ever would be again, Daniel says that it's about Daniel's people and Daniel's city. They'll be delivered from it. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble, It would seem odd to me if suddenly, in the midst of all that, the church, which is an unknown entity historically when Jesus is speaking, is suddenly brought up, and then the catching away of the church, which Paul will later call an unrevealed mystery. But Jesus introduced it in Matthew 24. But more importantly, the reason that I don't believe that there is any direct reference to the rapture in Matthew 24, is that there are several direct Old Testament prophetic passages that are parallels to what Jesus says here. And Jesus is speaking of fulfillments, perfect fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies, and I find that to be a much more satisfying connection than the notion that Jesus was speaking of the rapture of a church that nobody in his audience would have had any reference point for. Make sense? All right, are we in Matthew 24? We got as far as verse 28 last week. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's going to come up again, but for the moment, just file that in your head. Next week, we'll have to talk about that yet again. But verse 29 says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, boy, it's a hard place to start because Jesus has already been explaining to his apostles what is going to occur. They've asked him the question, what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And he has been telling them of signs, earthquakes and wars and rumors of war, and then assuring them, but that's not the end yet. That's not the end. Twice he has said, there are going to be false prophets. There are going to be people who come in my name and say, I'm the Christ. Don't believe them. And this is kind of the culmination of it, because he's going to explain to them that you're not going to miss it. If they say he's over there, he's in the desert, he's in some town, don't go. Because when I come back, no one's going to miss it. And this is what he's explaining here in verse 29, that immediately after this time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That should be enough to get people's attention. Something's odd today. Honey, have you looked outside? There are no stars the sun and the moon is gone it's like night during the day something must be up and right in the midst of that he says and then when the powers of the heavens are shaken when the sun and moon and stars have gone dark then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky we don't know what that is but when it happens everyone's going to see it and what's the reaction going to be And then all the tribes of the earth will run out to meet him with joy and singing and tambourines. (laughs) Won't the church run out? I mean, wouldn't the church run out? Yay, it's Jesus. He's back. Wouldn't they? Not here. Not here. Look at what he says. When he comes back, when the sun, moon, stars are dark, all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, doesn't that sound very rapturish? I just made up a new word. I mean, after all, he sends his angels with a trumpet, and they gather his elect from the four winds From one end of heaven to the other, that's one of the places that people say, well, that would be the rapture of the church. I'm going to demonstrate to you that it's not. Let's start at verse 29. Somebody look up Isaiah 13.10 for a moment. And the rest of us are going to go over to Joel 2. Find Joel 2. We looked at this briefly on Wednesday night. let's see who's got the Isaiah verse Isaiah 13 10 somebody got that because in verse 29 Jesus is actually quoting a prophecy from Isaiah the things that he is explaining here are not unknown things or unrevealed things there is already a prophecy from Isaiah and from Joel that says that this very thing will occur so Jesus is confirming what their scripture says already says go ahead and read that for us if you would tom
1: for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light
0: okay so here's a prediction from isaiah that this time of trouble is going to include these heavenly events where the sun and the moon go out and the stars go out do you find anything in history that would fit that description? No, we just don't. And so I have to assume that if Isaiah would prophesy it and Jesus would confirm it, that this is something that still has to happen. And you'd have to find it somewhere in history since Jesus was on the planet, since Jesus cast it out into the future yet. And I just don't find any place where that has happened. Joel picks it up. Turn to Joel 2. Starting right at verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Does this all sound familiar? For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and a mighty people, and there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Does this all sound familiar? Jesus is saying there's this time of trouble coming, such as never was, ever would be again. He calls it the day of the Lord. Jesus calls it the time of great tribulation. The two terms seem to be interchangeable. Go down to verse 10 and he says before them the earth quakes and the heavens tremble and the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness and the Lord utters his voice before his army and surely his camp is very great for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome and who can endure it. So. The sun and moon going out and the day of the Lord are connected in Isaiah's thinking and in Joel's thinking. By the way, it's confirmed by Peter at the day of Pentecost, even after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. At Pentecost, Peter again quotes from Joel and quotes the same thing, that that time is coming. Sun, moon, stars, going dark. This is all still an event that has to occur. So let's contrast these two for a moment. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians and writing to the Corinthians, writes them very reassuring language because they're of the day and not of the night. And so as a consequence, that thief in the night, day of the Lord thing is not going to come on them suddenly. It's going to come on the world that is in darkness, busy saying peace and safety. Then sudden destruction lands on them. But he separates the church out of that and says that that's not going to happen to you because you're not ordained to wrath. So two very separate groups. Paul describes the return of Christ in the clouds, the dead in Christ rise first, we who are alive and remain are instantaneously changed, we rise to meet the Lord in the air, and he says, comfort one another with these words. Here in Matthew, Jesus describes his return as being a terrible time, like Joel describes, like Isaiah describes, a time of terror and men on the earth running and hiding, running for cover well, then I conclude that these can't be one and the same event. I conclude that one is a very good event, and one is a very terrible event. And sometimes people will say, no, it's it's one and the same event. It's just two different reactions. But what we read from Jesus is that all the tribes of the earth are mourning. Here, in fact, turn to the book of Revelation for a moment. Revelation 6.13, I think, is it. Let's let's go over there and see. Did I hear an mm mm-hmm from somebody? Yes, this is what I'm looking for. We'll start at Revelation 6.12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when it's shaken by a great wind. Same event, heavenly darkness. And then here's what he says about it. Verse 14, And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And now notice the list. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave, and every free man, that's everybody, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, this is very interesting because at this point, the wrath of God that has been predicted by all of the day of the Lord language in the Old Testament is being satisfied by the return of Christ and the wrath of the Lamb. So it's Christ himself who is meeting out this wrath. He is returning in wrath. He is returning in judgment and vengeance and meeting out the vengeance of God, not only proving that Jesus is, in fact, God and that he is, in fact, the one that the Old Testament prophets have all been speaking of in fulfilling the wrath of God but notice the description of this event this is not a oh it's good and he's coming back and your loved ones are fine and comfort one another with these words this is a time of terror and trouble and vengeance and so I conclude that we're talking about two different events fall on us hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Back to Matthew 24, we're nearly done. Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its blood, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to another. Oftentimes people try to compare that, people who adhere to any other than the premillennial, pre-tribulational view. People will say this is very much like what we just read out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because there is a description of a gathering and there's a description of a trumpet and so the events are very similar but there are also some big differences that are really worth noting like for instance when writing to the Thessalonians Jesus said the Lord himself descends and we rise to meet him in the air in Matthew 24 Jesus' description of this gathering is that he sends his angels to go do the gathering? That detail counts. Those are different things. But here's what's really important to remember. Throughout the Old Testament, and those of you who have been with us through all these years and years of Wednesday night Old Testament study, the single most consistent prophetic event where Israel is concerned is the ultimate regathering of Israel, the reestablishment of the kingdom. That is thematic all the way through the Old Testament. Every one of the prophets says the exact same thing. Whether minor or major, whenever they talk about Israel, they say that God is going to scatter Israel. They're being scattered out of their land because of their disobedience. They're following after foreign gods and their failure to keep his Sabbaths and keep his law. And so they are scattered out of the land. But every single prophet with one voice says that God is going to regather them, reestablish them, plant them again in that land and they'll never be moved and they'll live in peace and safety, a kingdom that will never be conquered. All that language. I am convinced that what Jesus is saying here, and remember, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, that the reference to the elect in all of Matthew 24 is directly related to the several prophecies that we've looked at. Let's see, you were the one who finally said, there's a theme here, because we read so many passages from the Old Testament that called Israel the elect, The chosen of God. And so here's Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, talking to Jews, talking to Israelites. When he uses the word elect, the likelihood that they're thinking, oh, he means the church of Gentiles that isn't here yet, but will be here someday, something that Paul will refer to as a mystery. I just, I don't believe that's what he's saying. But as I'm going to show you in a moment, there are Old Testament prophecies that use this identical language to speak of the scattering of Israel. And they're gathering again. I think what Jesus is saying here is that when he returns, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they're going to gather together Israel from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other, all the places where God has scattered them. They're going to be regathered. Here I'll show you. Start in Isaiah 11. Go there. Isaiah 11. We're going to look very generally at verse 12 we'll start at verse 11 chapter 11 starts with then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse that's the lineage of David And a branch of his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide the fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with his breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." And also righteousness will be the belt of his loins. Faithfulness will be the belt of his waist. This is the return of Christ. What is the fallout of the return of Christ? Well, the wolf is going to dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze. And the young will lie down together. None of this has happened yet. These are fundamental changes to the nature of of animals and the animal kingdom there's going to be a change to everything when christ comes back when the prince of peace rules from jerusalem peace actual peace on the earth verse 8 says that a nursing child's going to play on the hole of a cobra and a wean child will put his hand into a viper's den and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the lord like the waters cover the sea this simply has not happened yet And so now he explains how it is that these things are going to happen through the root of Jesse, starting in verse 11. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who remain. Okay, so here's one of these promises of the restoration of Israel yet again. He's going to go get them from all the places that he has scattered them, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar. From Hamath and from the islands of the sea, and he will lift up a standard to the nations, and he will assemble the banished ones of Israel, and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Okay, so then Jesus, talking to Jews, tells them the Son of Man's going to send forth his angels, and they're going to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. This is perfectly in keeping with what they're already expecting. It's even the same language. But wait, we can get closer to the language than that. Isaiah 27, go there. Isaiah 27. Of course, Isaiah 27 is all about the deliverance of Israel. Look at verse 12. It will come about in that day that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O sons of Israel. And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. So now you've got the regathering of Israel, and it includes a trumpet, exactly like Jesus says in Matthew. Oh, but wait, I have more. Turn to Zechariah. If you're in Isaiah, head toward the back of the book and find Zechariah. Go to Zechariah chapter 2 first. Chapter 2, let's start at verse 5. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her. I will be the glory in her midst. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heaven, declares the Lord. If that sounds familiar, it's the same language that Jesus uses. When he says there's going to be a trumpet, we already saw that from Isaiah, and they're going to gather his elect from the four winds, exactly as Zechariah said, they've been dispersed to the four winds. Are you seeing these connections? All I'm trying to say is Jesus is simply saying the same thing that the Old Testament prophets have already said. He's not introducing a new concept. He is reassuring Israel that everything the prophets have said about Israel is still valid and that there is a time coming when he is going to send forward his angels and they are going to use a trumpet and they are going to gather his elect Israel from the four winds, the exact same four winds that Zechariah says they were scattered to. And so since that language is so specific and so exacting, I have to go with those connections rather than the notion that Jesus is speaking of a up till then unknown rapture of the church. One more. Let's look at one more verse also there in Zechariah. Turn to Zechariah 7. Oh, there's so much more that I want to read, but I've got to let you go. In Zechariah 7, the same language is used. God says that He scattered them with a strong wind. Starting in verse 13, and it came about that just as He called, and they would not listen. So they called, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts, but I scattered them with a strong wind, with a storm wind, I scattered them among all the nations whom they have not known, and thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. So this language of being scattered to the winds, scattered by a storm wind, scattered to the four winds, is very common language. The idea of being gathered by a trumpet is language they would know very, very well because Israel as an army, as a people group, when they moved, they were called by trumpets. When you would hear the trumpet, you knew that it was time to move. So not surprising that Jesus would say, perfectly in keeping with what Isaiah has already predicted, that the time is coming when Jesus is going to send forth his angels And he's going to send them with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. I am absolutely convinced by the preponderance of the evidence that Jesus is speaking about the regathering of Israel. He's not talking about the rapture there. No,
1: he's talking
0: about gathering them to Jerusalem. Gathering them to Jerusalem. So the, the evidence all goes that way. Next week, we will probably get to the other verse in Matthew 24, and we will talk about it and talk about whether or not it is a rapture verse. If you can't make it next week, I'll save you the trouble. It's not, but we'll, I'll show it to you the same way that I showed you this one, and, uh, and we will go from there. All right, good. That's a good natural stopping place, and somebody just showed up with pizza, so, you know. And Jean II brought cookies the size of pizzas. Have you seen the cookies that Jean II... So there's uh, all kinds of goodies back there. Okay. Are there any questions about what you heard this morning? I shudder to ask. Anything? Okay. If we were a shouting congregation, we'd be shouting. If we were a shouting congregation, we'd be shouting. Then, doggone it, what's keeping us from being a shouting congregation? <laughs> there, well, there you go. There's the kind of enthusiasm we're talking about. Great things are around the corner. And again, I'm just trying to teach what the Bible says and let it consistently tell its own story and wherever the chips fall, they fall. Uh, David,
1: this world is nothing.
0: That's right. This world is not my home. We should sing that. Do you know that? I, don't,
1: I, don't, I know it exists, but I don't really know the
0: song. <laughs> We're going to learn that song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me to heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. There you go. All right, good. We have a couple of announcements, but for the moment... Let
1: us come up and sing it. Let us come up and sing it. it. I just sung it to you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, say goodbye to the digital congregation. They're leaving us.
1: Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.